I firstly, I just think we should acknowledge what a wonderful Wimbledon it was. With crowds and real pageantry and celebration, we hadn't had a Wimbledon for two years. Which in the end, I don't know, I, I think it was a great decision. To have Wimbledon? Well, to, to have it, but also not to have it last year. Okay. Without crowds, you mean? Well, we didn't have Wimbledon last year because it was impossible, but like the French Open um, did, you know, reschedule and like make sure that they could have it. But Wimbledon, you know, didn't didn't try and do that. They just like, it's done for this year, but they made sure that in 2021 they were back and ready and we we were so ready for it. Yeah, I do think there's something to be said for the break. You know, as much as we were lamenting, you know, not having seen grass court tennis and the effect that that had on the players and their lack of readiness to play on the grass and the difficulty they had, like getting their footing literally on the surface. Yeah, it did, it did feel special and new. It almost makes me wonder if maybe some of these big events shouldn't be annual. You know, like I feel like there's this desire to just cram the schedule and as a result, you know, even as like a hardcore tennis fan, it's just like too much sometimes, you know? It's like eight weeks of the year, I basically have to dedicate my full attention to the slams. I mean, I don't have to, I choose to. And, uh, and then there's all this other stuff. They play for like almost 11 months out of the year, you know? If they added a fifth slam, for example, something they've talked about doing, like maybe it could be something that's every other year, or every four years, like the Olympics, which are coming up. And, should be interesting, but there's not going to be any fans, so I'm a little little disheartened about that. I feel like yeah. it's going to take some of the steam out of it. Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm feel the same way about that, actually. It's a bit of a shame. It is a jam-packed schedule, and um, my sleep deprivation is certainly pointing towards <laughs> the need for a break in the schedule. Like, I am um, just, like, I'm living on London time at the moment. I'm looking forward to going back. I've been sleeping at 4 a.m. and getting up at 1 p.m. every day. Love it. Yeah, I've been, yeah, here in Texas, it's like, you know, usually my cat will wake me up around, you know, 6 6 a.m. to to get fed and I'll heap a little uh, meat snack into a bowl for him and uh, crawl back into bed. But now it's just like, uh, Wimbledon's on. I, yeah, or, You know, yeah, I gotta stay up. I might as well, like, flick on the TV. I'll sleep later. You know, I'll sleep yeah. when I'm dead. I just loved Wimbledon this year. I feel a little bit, uh, like, dirty, um, you know, <laughs> seedy, maybe, like, um, because of the sleep stuff, but also a bit dirty because, like, you know, there's the royalty and there's Tom Cruise in the royal box and all this stuff that I sort of get a guilty pleasure out of enjoying Mm. and then there's also a lot of wholesome stuff you know which is just like um the like Ash Barty's victory was a really really wholesome I mean it came here in Australia at the end of NADOC week like our indigenous um and islander week of recognition so like everyone's celebrating their aboriginal identities and and the Ash Barty's um one, you know, one in, in Yvonne Gulagong's dress. And, you know, there's just, there, there were so many other things I liked about Wimbledon as well, including the line judges this year. They were, um, I felt like the, the cameras really made a point of zooming in on them as they were doing their job. Hmm. Yeah, that added to me for the, the celebration of everyone sort of participating in this tournament um, from ball kids to 
line judges to the crowds and yeah and then the stories of um, what went on in the actual gameplay yeah there was a little bit of ceremony that i never really noticed before but paid attention to this year that i enjoyed after the after the finals i only saw the singles finals but um they have like the royalty come out and and like meet and greet the um the <laughs> the ball kids i was gonna bring this and, up <laughs> <laughs> i think it was especially funny because um the guy who's been running the uh, all england uh tennis center lawn club whatever they call it the duke of kent the duke of kent i was gonna call him the duke of earl um the duke of kent he looks like he was just like they have a closet somewhere where this guy is you know like in suspended animation and they, <laughs> they kind of dust him off and roll him out like he's the most prototypically old regal british man i can th- i can think of uh very impressed by him <laughs> yeah, the, the small talk that they do with the ball kids is was so weird and awkward and funny to watch. And I was like, "What is this?" Everyone's, I don't know. I thought it was a bit like, a bit silly. But I can, I, I can appreciate the sort of, I don't know, the, the other side of it that it's pretty like unique Wimbledon thing. But there's the, the finals just finished. I'm talking about the women's final. It's the only one I've watched so far. The finals is finished stages set up everyone's like on a buzz from that and then there's like five minutes where everyone has to wait for these guys to walk out and like make weird <laughs> small talk with all the ball kids and everyone's just sort of watching them in the stadium it's like what, what are we doing here oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a chance for royalty to speak with the mere commoners yeah uh, what's the name of the the beautiful um you know uh, Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge Kate, Kate Middleton the Duchess of Cambridge yes she's She's something, and she's a commoner, right? She she married into the royal family, so maybe she's oh, yeah, telling the ball so. kids that you too can one day be royalty. <laughs> she plays tennis, you know. She's a keen tennis player. Yeah, cool. Apparently, the old mate, her husband, whoever that guy, William or Harry, he apparently he is as well. <laughs> old mate. <laughs> it's, it's William. You don't pretend like you don't know which brother she married. I don't. <laughs> Uh, Kate Middleton uh, was both at the Wimbledon men's final and at the Euro yeah. final at Wembley oh, right. today. Like, uh, yeah, she was she was pulling a serious double duty as uh, royal sports watcher. Is that, do you reckon that's a contractual thing or just out of passion? <laughs> that's a, it's a good question. I feel like because royalty has always seemingly been part of the Wimbledon experience. But what if the royals just decide they don't give a shit anymore? You know, like what if they're they're like, I'm into, I'm not into tennis, I'm into golf. <laughs> yeah, they set up a royal box at the at the 18th hole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or at the 19th hole. The clubhouse, yeah. Prince William's there, putting putting a few back, waiting for <laughs> waiting for Phil Mickelson to finish his round. Speaking of double double duties and Tom Cruise, he was at both, wasn't he? Oh, he was. Yeah, but I think in the first one, in the women's one at least, he was not in the Royal Box. He was just in the stands. Maybe he was trying to go incognito, but then halfway through the match, the camera zoomed in on him or whatever, and then the whole stadium was like, oh, it's Tom Cruise over there, and he like had to stood up, stand up and wave. And <laughs> it, it was like a really awkward moment because the players are ready to keep on and everyone's pointing at Tom Cruise and he's standing up and waving and the players are trying to serve. <laughs> He yeah. basically is royalty of a different yeah. kind. And he looked amazing. You know, it's like he's got like this perfect suit on. And um, yeah, he did the wave. At one point, though, the ESPN cameras like uh, f- focused in on somebody who looked like Tom Cruise. <laughs> They're like, <laughs> like, it's like they found like bootleg Tom Cruise in the crowd. <laughs> 
Another thing the commentators did with Tom Cruise was like, because he's promoting Mission Impossible and he, he was there with a couple of the other Mission Impossible actors and mm. they would say, um, like in the women's final, is, it, is this Mission Impossible for Carolina Pushkova? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Will Ash Barty run away with it? It certainly looked like Mission Impossible when um, Ash Barty won the first 14 points in a row in that <laughs> match. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Pliskova did not get off to a good start, and um, but clawed her way back in. I mean, Barty served for it in the second set, right, and couldn't close, and Pliskova took it in a in a breaker. Is that right? Yeah, I'm right, remembering yeah. correctly. Yeah, and she really took away took the breaker. I think it was really one sided breaker. Mm. Yeah, I found myself rooting for Pliskova, which is very strange. I mean, these are two players I don't really enjoy watching because they're just they're so emotionally closed. Um, and it, like, I actually think Pliskova is the more emotive of the two. Oh, no, it's, um, crazy. it's crazy. Yeah. Like she would, you know, I think both of them when they would emote, like, this is like, I think they're just classically introverted or something, but they, they'd like look at the ground and like yell at the ground. Cause you know, instead of like working the crowd and, you know, like really taking it in. Yeah. I don't know. I felt like Pliskova was you know, that, that's probably her last chance. I mean, you never know. People have basically written her off. So that's a nice story when you get that, that kind of run out of nowhere and uh, somebody who nobody really believes in anymore picked to be in the final or be, be the champion is, is there fighting. And also, it was like the first three-set women's final at Wimbledon in, in 11 years or something like that. Yeah, I heard that. That's wild. Yeah, it's crazy. It just had not been a close match in ages. Yeah, it's pretty great. Um, it was a, it turned out to be a, a really compelling match. Um, right, even in the third set, Pliskova was there, and she could have broken one more time. It could have been a different story. Mm. It was a worthy final, I thought. Yeah, absolutely. Barty is the best player on the women's tour right now, and we, you know, we've long known that that this was her preferred surface, and it kind of feels right. You know, it feels like the the right outcome that that she would get one of these. Yeah, I really think she's um, confirmed her greatness. Like there was questions over her number one ranking and that was maybe more due to the system in freezing the rankings during COVID rather than anything about Ash herself. But in any case, now she's got, yeah. two, now she's got two slams. She's world number one and she only lost one set in the way to the final which interestingly was to Suarez Navarro. Hmm. So I think it's just so great that Suarez Navarro played that well um, in her final Wimbledon match, taking a set off the eventual champion. Ash Barty is a legend. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of Aboriginal people are obviously celebrating Ash Barty's victory, sharing photos of her as a kid and that one photo that gets brought out every time she wins a tournament <laughs> such a cute photo of her um, <laughs> as a kid with the trophy and she doesn't look very much different to how she looks now yeah. um you know, it's like <laughs> yeah. people are yeah people are really happy she's just seen as yeah, like a, a worthy cha- a likable champion a humble champion yeah there's, there's all this talk about how like it was her dream as a little girl to win wimbledon and i'm I just can't, I can't help but be skeptical of that. You know, it's like, was it really her dream when she was five <laughs> years old and her parents were like, here's a tennis racket, <laughs> you know, yeah. she has fulfilled it. Whether, whether or not I accept her dream is, <laughs> yeah, is genuine. She has fulfilled it. <laughs>
And she went up to her player's box like Pat Cash did. In 87, it was like, I think he, he was kind of like the first player to sort of climb up to the box and now play, players do it. But, um, you know, Ash Barty tried to do it and she kind of went the wrong way. Because now there's steps, <laughs> yeah. there's steps up to the box. <laughs> but, like, she was trying to climb over the booth where Chris Abbott was commentating. And Chris Abbott's, like, waving to her and Ash Barty <laughs> just is not looking at her. And no one was there to no one was there to help her up because they'd all gone around to the correct side, ready to meet her. And she'd gone and tried to climb over the booth. She so tried no to climb. Even she was well. That would that would work if her team was there to like give her a lift up. But they'd all gone to the other side. So she got up to the top and they were like looking for a lift up, and there was no one to pull her up. And she's like, oh, awkwardly got back down and then went up the stairs the normal way. <laughs> I'm I'm always oddly afraid that in moments like that, an athlete is going to get hurt. It, we were talking about how they like set up the whole the row of uh, of ball kids for royalty to come meet and greet for a few minutes before they do the actual presentation. Mm. Yeah. But at least I, it, for Wimbledon, they were rolling straight into the presentation. Whereas like at the French Open, they have to like construct a stage, you know, yeah. like a bunch of French French carpenters come out and like, build <laughs> this weird apparatus. And then I'm worried like, well, what if what if Tsitsipas like while he's holding his his tray like falls off the edge which of course he wouldn't because he's an elite athlete and he's not you know he's not a klutz <laughs> like that's something i would do you do know they do that like, the u.s as well because i think at the australian open they build a little stage on, on court do they put anything on the u.s as well i can't remember i can't remember either i feel like they do make a stage i, I it, it may always be changing like they were making a to do this year about how like wimbledon started doing post-match interviews on court like this is like the most radical change of <laughs> of, of custom, uh, and they're like, yeah, the, this really worked. People love this. They want to stick around and hear from these people for a few minutes. Yeah, I heard about that. Apparently, usually they do it under the backstage or something, but because of mm. COVID, they're doing an outdoor interview, and everyone was like, oh, actually, we kind of like this. <laughs> yeah. But I think on the players' box thing, I think one of the slams, I can't remember which one, might be the US or one of them. They have a ladder ready to go, so the the player can. They have, when they win, they just pull, whip out the ladder so the player can climb up to their box dramatically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen good. that happen. I can't remember which one it was. Though. So any other thoughts about the men's tournament, Al? I know you don't know the result, but to the to that stage, did you mm. watch the semis? So it's Berrettini versus... Uh, her catch. Her catch, that's right. And Djokovic was playing... Who was he playing? Shapovalov. Oh, of course. Yeah, it was a good match. That was a good match. Uh, and Chapo was heartbroken at the end. He was in tears immediately afterwards. Yeah. That's good for him to go so a lot deeper than he usually goes at a, at a slam. So that was really, I was really happy to see that. He still got that crazy ball toss that he keeps catching, which is something I feel like he needs to sort <laughs> out. Hey? Um, that's yeah. another thing Brad Gilbert goes off about. He's like, that should be, you should have to hit that. You throw it up, you hit it. Don't, <laughs> not only it's catching it and re-catching it and, should be a fault. And I sort of agree, actually. I've come around on that a little bit. I'm like, resetting the clock and catching the, the, the toss all the time. I think that's it. That's it counts as a fault. I think if the clock was about to run out and you toss it and catch it, then you should get a time violation. Mm -hmm. But but if there's plenty of time, I don't think it should be that big of a deal. I also think that's like one yeah. of those things that old pros really care about. Yeah. You know, like it's like, uh, like they're not disciplined enough to get their ball toss right every time. And it's like, 
Well, it is. It's it's not helping them <laughs> most of the time. Like I know yeah. sometimes people feel like they're stalling. I thought the Shabvalov serve was really impressive. Actually, speaking of excellent, it was really really good. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah, he he's had some yips with the serve over over time, and I think that ball toss has hurt him in the past. But yeah, his serve, you know, especially in that first set against Djokovic, which he mm. should have won. Mm. Um, you know, like he was he was really the better player for a lot of that match. But Djokovic just did the Djokovic thing mm. of staying close and playing the big moments a little bit better. Shapo couldn't convert a break point after that first set. But yeah, his serve like was like Djokovic could not get a read on it for over a set. It felt mm. like. And for Novak, that's kind of wild because he's, you know, he's as good to return a tennis ball as anybody I think who's ever played. Yeah, he Shapo, I think, really took a step forward. Like he was showing maturity like in his person and in his game that actually has me thinking again yeah maybe he could he could win a slam or two Mm. you know like getting you know once once these other guys are gone (laughs) you know like i think that we're going to enter a period where a bunch of different guys a bunch of different men will be winning slams not unlike the women's tour right now because i Mm. I don't see any of them as becoming like the the true dominant figure i'm excited for that next phase where the the domination and and it's a free for all. Every slam, every tournament, it could be a, a hand, like any manner of six or seven players winning it. I'm really excited for that phase of, of the men's game. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think like none of the men who are like really coming up seem to be great on every surface. Like they all, some of them are good on, you know, like Shapovalov apparently is pretty decent on grass and, you know, good on hard courts. You know, Tsitsipas can't seem to find his footing on grass at all. Same thing with team. Like team is always out in the first round at Wimbledon if he plays. So yeah, it's going to, I am looking forward to that. I think, you know, it's just, just crazy. The dominance of the big three in total, like the, yeah. the number of slams they've won over the past 20 years out of the entire amount of available slams, you know, it's, um, yeah, it's something something crazy. So yeah, I think we're gonna enter a different period, and it'll be fun fun to watch. I had a moment just then of of thinking, you know, the the, the single handed backhand seems to struggle a little bit on the grass, but then I thought, then I remembered that there's one single handed backhand that really sort of <laughs> does all <laughs> yeah. right on grass. I was like, oh, maybe it that theory counters not so good. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> better is does yeah. all right on grass. But yeah, you know what I mean? Because on the clay, those players that when they have the time. They like Sissi Pass and team. Uh, I think there's probably a couple others and and Evans. They when there's a bit more time, they can they they do all right. But on the grass, it feels like when there's not as much time on the back end, maybe they struggle a little bit. But yeah, old mate Rog sorted that one out. <laughs> yeah, I'm starting to think that the elements of grass that are really important, most important, it's the movement first and foremost. Mm. Like if you can't change the way you move to get to the ball and like make the micro adjustments and you know, get your balance, like it's over, but then also being able to hit low balls. Like, I think that's one of the things about Roger. He just like, he can like scoop balls off the surface or he could when he was, you know, when he was in his heyday, you know, or like a player like Kerber who feels like her style is more like a clay quarter style, like more defensive grinding style. But she has this crazy shot where she just like basically crouches like down to the ground like she does a squat and hits hits balls you know yeah, i've like, seen a few of the women do that and it's strange that a lot of the women do it but you don't really see many of the men doing that shot yeah i can't think of a man doing that same kind of thing it's like some of some of the women some of the women crouch down and get that as a backhand as a top spin backhand but it seems like more of the men opt to take that kind of ball as a slice any theories matt 
I guess it depends on what you're more comfortable with. Like Berrettini's more comfortable in playing that as a slice because um, he's got such control on his slice. Really have noticed that um, crouching, the crouching down on the grass, as you say, David, the movement is so much more important. You get those bad bounces, especially towards the end of the tournament um, on the baseline where it's all, where the grass is all worn out and you really have to be able to adjust and drop down right to your knees. Like sometimes players take, like they take a knee involuntarily and just, um, just, just to be able to make that shot, which is cool to watch. It's definitely another exciting element that you get only with grass. Yeah. You know, there's also the grass season is extending because players are playing Newport now which is oh right i always forget about newport it's yeah it's weird that there's like it's a bit longer than we think this grass season yeah i i you know i do have a little bit of that post slam sadness i i think calling it a depression is a little bit much (laughs) but yeah so much of my last couple of weeks has been you know i've been thinking about it and focusing on it every day watching hours and hours of tennis and you know, listening to the tennis podcast and making this podcast. And yeah, and then all of a sudden, it's like, it feels like anything is just not going to quite live up to it uh, right away. But I guess I'm also kind of eager for a little bit of a break, you know, taking some other stuff for a minute. Other stuff. There, there is other things. Other stuff. There's other, there are other things in life. You would think that with the all white, there's not a lot of room for creativity. But I think within structure, there's freedom. Fashion this year at Wimbledon is, of course, a restricted palette. It's all white, but you are allowed to have a single trim of colour, which I think, actually, it's not necessarily just a single trim because there's the logos and then, like, Yonix, for example, has two trims of colour. Um... Mm. But it's definitely mostly white, and then it's what you do with all of that, um, with that restriction that I think is interesting. Right. So I'm I'm looking at a picture of uh, Hubert Hercotch, aka Hubie. Mm-hmm. He's moting a bit. He's having a good time. Had a good run at Wimbledon, got into the semifinals, beating Roger Federer on grass, and uh, he's wearing white with Yonex logos, and yeah, it's kind of a classically traditional collared shirt would you call that a polo yeah i I do call it a polo and um i really preferred the polo shirt over the t-shirt this year because there's not a lot going on color wise so you do need to do something with the collar to make the outfit interesting yeah with the lines there you can see like the seam on his shoulders it's nice and classic and he's got a couple of buttons done up and then he's got the blue and green trim around the outside of the collar, which Yonex have really played with this year. It's this 75 year anniversary. So they're going back to basics, blue, green, and white. Mm. Uh, the only colors they're, they're really using. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the the outfits, you know, they, they get their personality from the, the trim. The little accoutrements are maybe like texture. And here you, you have a sleeve where there's sort of an extra bit of fabric and there's sort of a snip, you know, like, like somebody took a little scissors and like cut a little trim into the exit of the armhole. I don't I don't really have industry terminology here. I find this outfit rather boring, actually. Do you like this one? I was just, I was more interested in it for the color and just to demonstrate mm-hmm. the, the polo look rather than the t-shirt look. 
yeah, it's not particularly interesting, but if, if it's seen in the context of Yonex's 75 years, if you just flick through to some of their other clothing. Mm, good, good socks. I like the socks. There's like a, a vertical stitching, but there are separate blue and green stripes with the Yonex logo in between. I kind of like that look. Yeah, yeah, that blue and green is really working for me. And then if you go ahead to Sevastova, she's wearing like a hot take on the polo shirt, mm. which is like this vest shirt with a high collar and then the prominent green and blue trim on the v-neck hmm yeah yeah good headband too I'm a, I'm a big fan of the headbands you are aren't you yeah I'm a headband man myself who is that is that Krajikova on the left yeah so she's another player that wears a racket manufacturer clothing label head oh right yeah head she's got a really good flowing netball skirt pleated skirt Mm. going on. Uh, I thought it was one of the best examples of the pleated skirt, which you saw a fair bit of. When you say a netball skirt, do you mean like the uh, obscure Australian sport netball? It's not just Australia. New Zealand play it too. And uh, England, <laughs> Jamaica, uh, Canada, I believe. Um, oh. Is it at the Olympics? Is it? Uh, it's definitely in the Commonwealth Games. Maybe it's not at the Olympics. Well, anyway, what makes it a netball skirt? Uh, well, uh, we call it a netball skirt over in, down in these parts because that's the style of skirt that you wear playing netball, pleated, pleated skirt. Right. Well, Krajikova's uh, also wearing white. Kind of like, I like this shot. Um, I don't know if it's just the shot that makes the outfit look appealing. It's got like, you know, well-fitting arms, you know, that go down to about the elbow, but then there's sort of looseness, a casual flow to the material. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's got the sleeves happening right to the elbow. You even saw some like players wearing like full sleeves to the wrists and leggings mm. to the ankles. I find this a really interesting contrast showing Krajikova in this flowing headgear and the, the loose netball skirt compared with Sevastova with the Yonex. And the Yonex, I like the, the women's line a little bit better than the Hubie Hurtkoch line, but uh, it does seem a little bit more severe. You know, it's got the, the V-neck, the sharp angles, the collar. It, it just um, it seems like more formal in a way. Yeah, and classic as well, I would say. It's kind of like Martina Navratilova in her Puma um, that she used mm. to wear. Also had that kind of high collar V-neck. I don't know if she ever did the tank top vibe, but yeah, it reminds me of Martine Navratilova. Yeah, I can see that in my mind's eye quite clearly. Um, why don't we move along to the next slide? Which is Roger Federer in his Uniqlo outfit. He has his own designer for Uniqlo who makes his personal outfit for each tournament. Mm. And, um, it's got a mint green trim. You can't see it so well in that photo. Yeah, the trim is like it's partial. Like it like covers part of the of the edge of his collar and then also his uh, his sleeve. It doesn't go around the circumference of the material. Yeah, you're right. It's just it's just like um, a piece. Hmm. And I think the most notable aspect of this outfit is the uh, the subtle grid. Mm. 
the grid pattern that's that's on the on the shirt. Yeah, I like to call it a postage stamp impression because it's like a sheet of postage stamps with the perforations around the stamps. Yeah, right. Yeah, I can see that. I I do I feel like the Roger Uniqlo outfits have been unfortunately a step down from what Nike was doing with him because obviously Nike was also creating unique outfits just for Roger like they do with Rafa and I don't know Uniqlo just feels I don't know if it's just my brand association that it feels like a cheaper brand it does feel like a cheaper brand I agree it doesn't match the like perceived elegance of of Roger entirely like it feels more like Roger as product you know, Roger as multinational sports icon seen through the lens of the company that was willing to pay him the biggest amount of money to wear their clothing. Yeah, I, I see that. Um, I think partly it's it's our kind of cultural bias mm. on Uniqlo. It's a new brand. It doesn't have quite the gravitas that a Nike or Adidas has with, you know, the heroic commercials and yeah, right. you know, but I don't, I don't mind the Rogers outfit here. The the pop of red, the Uniqlo logo, is not bad. Yeah, it's not bad. I'm I'm really not a fan of um, logos on sleeves. I, I had the same issue with the Yonex logo and some other logo that were on her Katja's sleeve. Like, I just think the whole thing would work better without that. But of course, the brand, it's so important to them that the, the Wimbledon restrictions like have to account for the fact that brand names are going to be visible on the clothing. Yeah, not, not a big fan of that, that element there. Roger just, Roger just looks good in clothing, I think. <laughs> so, um, you know, especially this is, a, this is a lovely pose of him, you know, getting ready to unleash that single-handed backhand. Yeah. While in mid-stride. Yeah, it's a good, good shot. Yeah. He, he does look good. Um, what about Fila's collaboration uh, with Brooks Brothers? So this is yeah. something that, like, uh, sports labels are doing now. They're sort of teaming up with another clothing label, like a more formal fashion label. Like, yeah, right. Like Brooks Brothers. And so they've, they've gone... Um, they've got these blazers with buttons... And the shorts have a, a pleat in them, a crease, like a single mm. single crease down the front. So it makes, makes it look more like formal wear. Yeah, I'm experiencing a bit of brand dysphoria right now. I don't really understand what I'm looking at here. Like, are you supposed to wear this blazer while playing or it's like while you're warming up like it looks like something that you would wear as an official not as a player but uh, do you have any photos of this being worn by players i have seen mackenzie mcdonald um wearing the blazer mm. and the shorts so i'm not sure whether he wore the shorts with the crease playing or whether he just wore it um you know walking to the court before the match a la serena wearing a big skirt that she didn't actually play in like her kind of her entrance tutu yeah i associate fila you know fila just feels like a kind of middle of the road sportswear company not pricey not exceptional in any way and brooks brothers is like really stuffy yuppie mm. formal wear yes in my mind the brothers brooks brooks brothers brothers brooks i think for me fila has a bit more 
cultural credit there. Like um, in the okay. in the 90s, it was a pretty hot brand, and then it's also got like the Bjorn Borg mm. classic tennis outfit, you know, with mm. the stripes and the headband. Right. Yeah, I like that. You know, just looking at this joint Brooks Brothers line that you've shared, that there's one thing I like about it that I wanted to call attention to, which is the pattern on the inside of the trunks, which I always find to be like a kind of subtle, classy element in uh, men's shorts. Very few people actually get to see the interior of your shorts, and it feels like a special moment. So I, I like reserving a little special kind of surprise. Yeah, I, I do too. I, I find that even for yourself, I kind of get a bit of a smile from seeing a, a detail in my clothing that's on the inside. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Looks like it feels good. Yvonne mm. Gulagong wore Fila in the 70s and 80s. She looked great and her scallop dress, Ash Barty, used, used that design to celebrate the 50 years of Gulagong's Wimbledon victory in 71. Um, mm. So it's, uh, from that point of view, it's got a more of a designer aspect, you know, like at that time, especially the women's dresses, they were designed by a tailor. You know, because you were you were you were, yeah, right. you were walking onto the court at Wimbledon, and you needed to look good. So, like, um, the Gulagong got measured up for her dress. You know, like she got mm. she got a tailor to kind of like to make her dress for her. Yeah, right. Yeah, and that's what that's what Feeler's done for Ash Barty. Like, you know, more of a like a fashion catwalk kind of vibe going on with the dress. Yeah, right. I didn't realize that I, I didn't make the association that uh, that Ash was wearing Fila with with the scallop dress, which definitely got a bit of attention for uh, standing out and for the reference, the callback, the tribute to Gulagong. Um, should we move on to Ons Jabur? Yeah, I thought you'd like this one, David, because um, not only is she wearing the bandana, which you're a big fan of, a detail here is that Ons goes with a flowing bandana at the back there's there's length to the bandana that's my style right i wear i like the long flowing bandanas yeah makes me feel like i have a ponytail or something yeah (laughs) and it's more old school right it's it's more you know than 80s and 90s players uh, had more of that vibe with the bandana rather than like victoria azarenka or roger federer they're wearing the bandana but it's tied and it's very short at the back there's not much flow to it yeah, yeah, totally. I, I have noticed that because of my own style decisions. Did I ever tell you about the time I ordered all of these long flowing headbands on Amazon? And then the next day I got an email saying, since you bought these headbands, you might like these pirate eye patches. <laughs> they thought that I was like just playing dress up for Halloween or something or costume party. But no, I'm a very serious athlete. Yeah. You know, I, I have tangibly noticed the difference in my perspiration when I wear the headband. It's so much better when I run. It's not like I don't still have sweat on my face when it's hot out, but it it makes a big difference like for the sweat in my whole body, actually. Like I don't sweat as much through my shirt. Anyway, Ons, yeah, I do like this one. I like the short sleeves. I like the subtle uh, faded kind of like silver texture that you can see on the shirt. I don't know if that's really silver. Yeah, that Lotto shirt, it's a texture rather than a color, but it's sort of, it's more see-through in parts. 
so you're actually seeing a bit yeah. of her skin through there not not it's not silver but yeah she looks great there's no collar on the lotto shirt which is not my favorite but she looks so good and that bandana the flowing bandana has a big part to her look yeah she's got the her hair up in the bun and she, she's also got this interesting she's good she's wearing a wristband and she's doing a fist pump and under the wristband she's got a little like a black beaded bracelet that she's wearing she just looks like a badass and i just like how the whole outfit kind of goes with her fierce competitive vibe i didn't notice that bracelet interesting yeah and she is you're right she's such a badass Venus Williams loves her, thinks that she's an inspiration. Obviously inspiring Arab women and um, North African women to be tennis players. She's Muslim and uh, she plays sometimes during Ramadan, which presents a bit of a challenge because, you know... Right. She's fasting. Yeah, but um, she takes some liberties, at least in one article I read she sacrifices in other areas so that she can still eat something during the day because yeah right yeah but that's I, I didn't realize she was muslim next slide we've got one martin fusevich wearing a, a shirt that says the word dork on it is that what is that what that says it's she yeah he, he's not a, a he's a big dork um, he, he's a, <laughs> it's the, not the first thing that comes to mind when I see Martin Fusevich, but uh, yeah, it says DRK actually. Yeah, I don't know the brand. What's the, tell me more about this shirt? Uh, I don't know a hell of a lot either, but the DRK stands for Dorco. Uh, oh, it does sound for stand for Dorco. Dorco, Dorco, okay. not not Bye. Dorco. Yeah, um, it's a Hungarian brand, and yeah, it's got a very like the the font is like very stern. You know, it's very bold, mm. and the R is reversed, sort of like how the band Korn spells uh, spells its name with a reversed R. Martin uh, Fusevich is is one of the most muscular men on tour. He's one of the people who got me to coin the the phrase "alarming fitness." Like his fitness is actually it's not just striking; it's it's almost upsetting. Like, I feel like he would be leading a battalion of soldiers fighting against the Allies in World War II, so. Yeah, he, he looks like a big jock football player. His muscles very impressive. Um, he's got a really short kind of military kind of haircut as well. Yeah, that, that definitely contributes. And yeah, he's, ha he's always had a bit of a mustache. It looks trimmed here. Yeah. Yeah, very, very military vibe. Yeah, I just thought I'd draw attention um, to the Dorco label, which is, um, mm. I, he must be the only player wearing it. Um, and it's a polo shirt again. Yeah, a little bit of, of a skimpier collar on the polo. Yeah, right. It's very short. It's it's very um, thin, thin collar. The next slide is um, Shay Su Wei celebrating the doubles victory with Elise Mertens. Oh, they look so, so joyful. Oh, yeah. And they saved match points to win the doubles final. Yeah, I meant to watch it and then it got spoiled for me because I was listening to the tennis podcast and like forgot about it. But it sounds like it was an epic final. Yeah, so cool. And I, I didn't see the final either, but I did see, I did see them play against Shibahara and Aoyama in the semi-final, which was um, a great match. 
Yeah, right. Yeah. In that match, in the semi-final, Shea Suwei is wearing a full Nike ensemble, and I thought, oh wow, maybe she's finally got her act together and organized a clothing sponsor. <laughs> right. But then, because the, some, you know, usually she's wearing half Adidas, half Nike. But then the next match, I'm like, no, she's just wearing whatever the hell she wants to wear. She just wears it. <laughs> she mixes and matches from any label. Um, she's got a Nike skirt on and a Bidi Badu shirt on with a <laughs> scoop neck. Um, Bidi Badu is this uh, like really this colorful European label that I've only ever seen Wesley Kuhlhoff, the doubles player, wear. It's, so it's it's quite obscure, but um, they got this kind of geometrical lion logo, and um, mm. and their colours are, are pretty like '80s pastels and fluoros and stuff. Yeah, right. Someone order like sign Shaysu Wei and like give her her own clothing label because I think she's so cool and like it would be awesome. But until that time, she's just gonna wear mixing and matching. <laughs> yeah, in a way, I think that's like more in tune with her personality. She just uh, beats to her own drum and uh, she's a delight. And this is, I think, the third doubles team that she's won a Grand Slam doubles championship with. Um, I wish I had watched that match. Um, sounds like it was a good one. Yeah. But perhaps they'll continue to to play together since uh, I guess uh, Shay was playing with Barbara Streetseva and uh, Streetseva has retired. So. Yeah, then maybe there'll be um, there'll be a fixture now. Yeah. So moving along to the next slide, we have Iga Schwante, French Open champion, wearing Asics. I wanted to point out Asics because they just they really interpreted the Wimbledon rules literally, and they said and they just have the single band of color, not greater than one centimeter around the neckline and in this case they've gone for a fluorescent orange color Mm. it's not particularly great for me it's just a tank top with a round neck but it's to demonstrate that you can do something you can you know what it's the color that you choose um, and where you put that band of color that's sort of your um, your main choice when you're designing an outfit for Wimbledon yeah, right. I like that it's uh, sleeveless. She's showing her arms. But yeah, there's something kind of awkward in the shape of the upper part of the top. I kind of like the the fluorescent orange. It's just like the one tiny bit of color, and it doesn't seem like an overly adorned logos everywhere, although there's some kind of logo in the center of her chest. Do you know what that is? Uh, no, I, it's PZU. It says PZU on it, and... Um, hmm. I know Adidas, their outfits have been like, kind of like football shirts with stripes down the front, like in, in kind of in the texture. It's all, right. So it, yep. it looks like, you know, like Inter Milan jersey or something. But then they've got the logo, which is a Team Adidas logo. It's like a tennis court. And it looks like a, mm. it looks like a football team's logo. Same with the PZU right. that um, Schwantek's wearing, and I just realized it's a insurance company, a Polish insurance company logo. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think that I would have been better off not knowing that. But Yeah. 
It's like it's like advertising Geico or something. Like you got the Geico lizard on the center of your shirt. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Well, anyway, Shrantek is great. She lost in the round of 16 to Ons Jabur. Moving on. Um, Serena, Serena Williams um, is wearing one sleeve. Yeah. Well, it was it was a compression sleeve, right? That's a it's like a medical sleeve or is that part of her outfit i actually can't tell well she's known for doing asymmetrical outfits so whether it's for medical reasons or it's um for fashion it's certainly like it's all white it draws attention to one arm you know she's got one arm showing and one arm uncovered it's interesting too because it kind of balances out the very heavy strapping she had on her right thigh so the the left sleeve whether it was uh, medical or, or part of the outfit is you know kind of like balances this odd asymmetrical kind of thing that she has going on i like that she took her medical supports seriously and kept them in the color of white <laughs> the non-color of white yeah like um, we were seeing a, lot, a fair number of black ankle supports late in the wimbledon championships yeah berrettini all black ankle supports i was happy to see that um jeremy shardy he had a nice lacoste polo and he he had white ankle supports yeah nice i feel like there's an exception it's like if there's no choice shapovalov was also wearing black ankle supports it seems like there are ankle supports out there that you could get that are white and suddenly i'm a big uh advocate for all white um serena looked terrific like her her just her physique and her outfit uh you also have a, a, a picture here of her uh her entrance dress i don't I, I don't know what else you would call it it almost looks like a bridal gown yeah um yeah or a um a, a, yeah a gown a, a queen's gown or something yeah yeah right yeah um yeah it's just such a shame what happened to her in that first first round match because it's not just that she looked physically imposing and she looked to be in really incredible fitness but her form looked great for three games and then it just it just ended what a shame that's a big shame um hopefully she'll be back for the u.s open yeah all right uh Next slide, we've got uh, we've got Ash Barty with the scallop dress again, yeah, and uh, Yvonne Gulagong for reference. Um, it's quite different scalloping uh, uh, back in Gulagong's day. Yeah, it, uh, it, at- the scallopings on the shoulders for Gulagong as well. Yeah, it's it's quite different. I you know I I almost had the feeling like watching Ash that the dress she actually wore what didn't have the same scalloping along the bottom like you could definitely see the floral texturing that's on there which is which is different that's not actually from Gulagong. It, it's a from a different Gulagong outfit apparently oh uh, interesting yeah Gulagong was like oh yeah and those that flower design that was from one of my other outfits oh wow okay so it's a double double reference um, maybe it's just that it was hard to kind of notice that the detail on the edge of her, on the hem of her garment uh, when she played. But yeah, I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing it now. I'm not, uh, I just was not remembering correctly. Yeah, it's just the scalloping. The scallops are bigger on the original Gulagong dress, and they're 
they're smaller and more numerous on the, the body dress. Um, let's go to Bernarda Pera who wears Lacoste and she's got a turtleneck, um, a full, full sleeves turtleneck. Well, in Australia, we'd call that a skivvy. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah, and there's the little Lacoste logo on the neck. Oh yeah, I can't even. I can barely see it in this image. Yeah, but it's it's something no one else did. No one went for that kind of that turtleneck collar. Hmm. Seems like it would be uncomfortable. Yeah. But I've never been. We've never been one for turtlenecks. Well, I'm assuming it's really nice athletic perspiration, wicking wicking the perspiration away material. Yeah, I think it's different also when you don't have a neck beard. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have a neck beard, but I do have, you know, I do have hair growing in and I, I feel like the, the turtleneck against my skin there would be uncomfortable, but uh, I don't think I've tried a turtleneck on since I was 12 years old, so. Okay. Um, yeah. Well, Moving on. I'm moving along to um, <laughs> now Hibino, um, who's wearing uh, Lecoq Sportif, and she's got the that same that sort of netball skirt that Krujic ever had, but the element here is like this piece missing of the, <laughs> yeah. of the netball skirt. It's pretty cool. I like this one. I call it a deconstructed netball skirt. Hmm. Yeah. All right on. Yeah, and it seems like there's like like the fabric underneath is is layered. It's like folded, you know. It's like folded over itself. Yeah. I don't know how else to explain that. Well, the it's there's the bloomers like the kind of little shorts that are underneath underneath the skirt. Yeah, right. And then there's yeah, and then there's another piece on top. I think it's actually not. I think it's sort of hitched up a little bit in this photo. So. Mm, okay. They're like the piece missing of the netball skirt is actually a little more pronounced in this photo. Yeah, have, have you noticed Japanese players wearing Le Coq Sportif before? I feel like I've only seen French players do it. Like I know uh, Richard Gasquet was wearing it uh, at some point. Uh, Hibino has been wearing Le Coq Sportif for a few years, but I don't know of any other Japanese um, players. That, that do wear Lecoq. I, um, for me, Lecoq Sportif is the like one of the more fashion conscious, kind of high end sport sporting brands. Um, mm. So it's like, yeah, it's a it's a good choice. Um, it's a it's a cultured choice. So maybe maybe they just know their they know their shit in Japan. <laughs> maybe, although I. I, I, I'm not. I can't say I'm crazy about the the giant text logos uh, that are across from uh, on the other side of the of the chest from from the Lecoq Sportif logo. It's like a big word that says brass. Yeah, but that's just her sponsor. Um, I think. I know. That's not Lecoq. I don't don't, don't like pin that on Lecoq. Yeah, I know. Okay, I, I'll use my imagination and imagine it without that. And, uh, as 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 the cock intended. That's right. <laughs> uh, moving along, uh, Alina Svitolina in Nike. Yeah. Sure. She, 
she's got like this ace and again asymmetrical kind of shirt that's like it's half a shirt and then half of like a jacket on the side <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it does it looks kind of vesty in this uh in this photo but it's kind of hard to get a good good sense of it yeah i just took a screenshot when i was watching her play it's really caught my eye because um because mm. you know it's it's uh it's fashion it's very fashion yeah right i feel like spitalina is a player who is not shy about wearing non-traditional outfits i remember her you know posing in all of the the nike gear i don't know if it was before the french or the aussie uh, but like showing off the line and uh making the the clothing look good i think yep and um and next we've got uh ugo on there who um who is wearing wilson not many players wear wilson but again it's just like it's not just a t-shirt it's, it's, what, what, would you, what would you say this what's going on in this collar here yeah the collar is really interesting well there's like it seems that there's a zip right so he could really like like open it up and let out the chest hair if uh if he's able to grow any at this point you know he ugo i think ugo looks really great he's grown his hair out and he's got like you know these real like john McEnroe 1980s curls but he he also has this chin hair that um, I think is maybe a little on the questionable side. <laughs> yeah, so the, so the collar here, it's it's like a flat collar and there's stripes uh, at the neckline, like two stripes of black, looks like black anyway. But then the shirt kind of opens up down to the zip, um, which I believe, uh, I'm not sure if he's zipped it all the way up or if it could be zipped further. I think it could be zipped further. Um, I, think that, I think you're right, that's what could be going on there. It's like halfway up. Yeah. Yeah, so it kind of creates like a little bit of like a casual vibe. You know, it's it's the flattened collar, not the the stuffier polo collar. And yeah, he's just got a casual vibe going on anyway between that shirt and the hair. And like, you know, he's got you know he's got like some some wristbands and neckbands. You know, he's kind of like you know a college kid. You know, dude who smokes smokes some pot on your you know on your dorm floor <laughs> and. Uh, like list, listens to fish or something. Right, it's good. It's good, right? But it's it's not just a t-shirt. It's some um, there's some there's a, there's some interest going around around the chest and neck yeah. area. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got a vibe. He lost to Nick Kyrgios in that dramatic first round match that took two days, and I was really enjoying watching him play. I think he could potentially go on a deep run at Wimbledon someday. Um, so yeah, looking forward to seeing seeing more of Ugo in the future. Yeah, right on. Um, lastly, we've got Ilya Ivashka who's wearing hydrogen, and um, again, it's like a, it's an interesting collar. Um, there's a button up um, down the the front, uh, in, in the chest area. It's um, and he's got just a single button undone, but then it's not mm. the polo collar. It's more of just like a. Um, sort of a, it's it's a t-shirt it's some, somewhere between a t-shirt and a and a polo yeah there, I feel like there's a name for that type of shirt yes it has a collar but it is not um, it's it's like a flat collar it's like an embedded collar 
Yes. Um, I've found the Guide to Men's Dress Shirt Collar Types by Paul Frederick. Let's see if I can get some information here. While you do that, I'll just point out that there's um, a couple of lines, uh, horizontal lines of texture on the across the front of the shirt, and then of course the um, the hydrogen skull logo, which is muted instead of black. It's kind of like a a gray. Yeah, all the information I'm finding about collars is referring to actual collars and not like a flat like. A collar that's not a collar. Yeah. Um, we'll have to have Davy Gravy do a little research on this and uh, let us know what he finds. That'd be great if you could organize that. Yeah, we'll see if, if he's got anything to say here. The collar you speak of typically appears on what is referred to as a grandfather shirt or granddad shirt. It is a long-sleeved or short-sleeved flannel or brushed cotton band collared shirt worn throughout Ireland. Traditional shirts are white with colored vertical stripes. Longer shirts are used as nightshirts or pajamas. The nightshirt version can include a matching nightcap. This style of shirt was also worn by working class men in the United Kingdom during the industrial era. At this period, the lack of a turndown or collar cape was filled by the use of a detachable collar. The 2010s decade has also seen the garment feature as a mainstream fashion item for men. The grandfather shirt is also made of Irish linen. The linen version is colloquially known as a Sunday shirt. Sunday shirts are often paired with black trousers or Irish tweed pants and worn to mass, christenings, funerals, and weddings. A similar collarless shirt or tunic, known as a kurta, is traditionally worn in the Islamic world in South Asia. This usually has three or four buttons and is often decorated with intricate embroidery. By the way, you sound terrific today. Well, I've, um, I'm continually improving. I've got like, I have a, an arrangement of pillows and stuff in my room like to like sort of replicate one of those uh, professional sound booths that you sent me. I've got four pillows and blankets and curtains and stuff all draped around. You know, I'm like in a child's play fort. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, now we can talk about the men's final as well. So Al doesn't know this, he, but... He doesn't know. He doesn't know yet, but he's about to be pretty happy because he is a big Djokovic fan. Yeah. I didn't think that the outcome was ever in doubt, even though Bertini managed to get that first set. He kind of stole it, you know, getting the late break and winning the breaker pretty comfortably. Um, but after... You know, like after the way Djokovic beat Rafa in Paris and the way he came back from two sets to love down against Tsitsipas, like I don't think there's any doubt in his mind when he when he's down that he that he's still going to be stronger when it counts. And um, yeah, he did it again. Yep, he um, he's pretty special. Oh, his his mental capacity, his um his concentration. He talked about that. I think. Um, speaking to Darren Cahill straight after the ceremony, mm. um, yep. at the work that he puts in with like meditation and mindfulness, um, concentration, quietening the mind and, you know, all of that being in the moment, he talked about that. He said, you know, that's as important to him as the physical training. Yeah, it's super impressive. I, one thing I noticed in the post-match interviews he was giving is just like, you know, I was reminded of how cerebral he is. You know, he's really like, he's really thinking about the game. So 
the fact that he is such a thinker and that he's able to kind of analyze and evaluate and, you know, dig into the, you know, the X's and O's of the sport, but then also have that, like that presence of mind, the, the ability to center himself and be more solid when it matters the most. Uh, it's, it's pretty incredible. So, uh, once again, Novak Djokovic ate the grass at Wimbledon. He didn't actually ate the grass, though, did he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, I was I was really eagerly awaiting that moment because I wasn't sure if that was just like a Federer taunt <laughs> or part of like part of the ceremony that he's decided to uh, to you know execute when he when he wins Wimbledon. I I saw him put his hand on the grass and then. And then he looked to the sky and pointed to the sky. Um, I must have missed the actual eating of the grass. Yeah, he he ate the grass first, and then he kind of like you know he was doing a bunch of acknowledgments. I can't remember if he like he did the uh, the giving the heart from heaven like you know uh, gesticulation in the four cardinal directions thing, uh, <laughs> and then and then he like patted the grass. And like pointed to the sky, like he was, you know, he was really doing a lot of the little Djokovic performance art thing that he does. Yeah, yeah, he did. And he went to he went to his box, and then he came back out, and then he he um he threw some things into the crowd, and then he acted like he was going to throw his whole um tennis bag into the crowd. He picked it up and like was like, <laughs> yeah, oh, check this out, <laughs> no, but it, which was kind of funny. Um, yeah. Uh, a lot of players can't be, you know, like he, he's an old hand now, but a lot of, um, you know, especially if you're winning a tournament for your first time, you're a bit like tentative or you don't know what to do, but he knows exactly what to do. He was like this, you know, he, mm. he really put on a show post-match and then he, he also gave his racket to a fan, which is mm-hmm. some, a bit of a tradition for him now. Yeah, he he's practiced he's he's done this 19 times before and that's not counting all the tournaments that he's won that aren't slams you know which is probably i, I don't know over 60 or 70 um in total so he's yeah he's an old hand at it in his in his on-court post-match interview the first thing he did was acknowledge berrettini's run and give credit to him and you know i after the semifinal, when he beat Shapovalov, like Shapovalov was just gutted, you know, like, like basically, you know, he broke down, started crying. And Djokovic was really generous in a way that felt very, very honest and pure. Like he, you know, he really respected the way Shapovalov competed and the effort involved in like really pushing Djokovic. I think, I think in some ways Shapovalov actually pushed him more than Berrettini did. But I, but I also know that like Djokovic got a lot of positive attention for like how gracious he was. And I feel like Djokovic, whether, like, I don't know if he's the sort of guy who's like going back and watching his own interviews and being like, Oh, that really worked. You know, like, Oh, somebody called out. I love you from the crowd. And I say, I love you too. Yeah. (laughs) And everybody loves it. You know, I kind of get the impression he, he would do that. Cause he just, but, but I think he's just, he's just noticing those things, you know, he's, he is in the moment and, you know, like Ash Barty, she was asked about match point, uh, in her post-match interview. And she says, I honestly can't remember, (laughs) which is, you know, which is fair and totally honest. And I could see how you would lose consciousness for a minute or just like kind of 
you know, you're almost like not even in your body. But I think Novak's just been through it so many times. He he really is able to take it all in. And and uh, yeah, and he's, you know, he's going through the motions in a way of being possibly the greatest tennis champion on the men's side of all time. Yes, he, he is. He's not as loved as Federer or Nadal. And we've talked about this before. And there was times in the match where the crowd were really trying to get behind Berrettini. Djokovic, you know, seemed a little frustrated. It was obviously difficult for both players, I think, to serve under these conditions because the crowd, the crowd was so involved. Uh, Novak doesn't really mind. I mean, I mean, I guess he does. I'm sure he does mind some of the unfair criticism or hate that he, that he gets, but um, able to deal with it so well. And I got the sense that, you know, by the end of the match, he was warmly embraced by the crowd. Yeah, for sure. Which he totally deserves. Yeah. And, you know, and like in a way, I think he kind of saved some of his best play for late in that match. You know, like he didn't, he didn't get asked the really, really hard questions. Like he, you know, like he was, you know, playing Rafa at Roland Garros, for example. But when Berrettini came up with the goods, he always had the answer. And it was just, it's sort of undeniable. You know, I mean, maybe you don't like his personality or his game style or whatever, but he just, his greatness is, it can't be questioned. And I, I, I know that like fans rooting for his opponents happens a lot. And I know it gets under his skin sometimes, but today it didn't. It didn't seem to bother him. He, I think, he just knows. Like, of course, they they want a match. They want they want the underdog to to show them something. They've never seen this guy on this stage before, so you know why wouldn't they want that? It's easy for me to sit here and say like that's that's a perspective that you can gain, but I I don't know. Maybe he maybe he's gotten there and this. He's now even with Roger and Rafa at 20 slams apiece, which is just ludicrous. Uh, I don't, I just don't even, you know, they put the graphic up and it's like, how did it end up this way? You know, it, it would sort of be poetic if it ended with them all on the same number. But I think Novak's gonna, gonna take the lead pretty comfortably in the next couple of years, but you never know. Yeah, it does certainly look that way um, that Novak is going to go down with the most slams. And he keeps the possibility alive of a golden slam. The golden slam. Yeah. And um, a calendar slam, even if he doesn't win the Olympics, like the calendar slam, um, if he wins the US Open, would be um, amazing. It would be the, he'd be the only, would he be the only man, man to do that? Um, in the open era, along with Laver, did La- yep. Laver did it in '69, right? Yeah, I think that's right. It was that the technically the open era. I think I think it was, but yeah, I think Laver was the the only man to do it at all. The open era of tennis began in 1968 when Grand Slam tournaments agreed to allow professional players to compete with amateurs. Rod Laver is the only man to win the Calendar Slam in the open era which he accomplished in 1969. Margaret Court in 1970 and Steffi Graf in 1988 have also accomplished the feat. Steffi Graf also won Olympic gold that year, making her the only player in history to have achieved a so-called golden slam. You know, the fact that he's, he's in that position again. Uh, he didn't win the U.S. Open last year, but that was, you know, he, he was defaulted, so... He's clearly the favorite going in. I, barring injury, there's, there's no reason to think that he can't win it again. But uh, I think, you know, I heard Rafa's, you know, getting ready for hard courts. And I think he'll be, he'll be coming hard to try and 
and uh, play the spoiler, which is a role he's played before. Yeah, that'll be fun. And apparently Federer is going to play the Olympics. Oh, I didn't hear that. That's great to hear. I'm glad to. I'm glad he's going and giving it a shot. You know, it's his run. We I, we haven't really talked about. We haven't talked about how it ended. It was sad. Like it, he really put in a poor performance against her catch. Like he had his chances and was in that match at points. But for the most part, he just he was just spraying errors all over the place. It just looked terrible. Kind of like how he did in the first round match. Yeah, it, he he wasn't great um flashes of brilliance but he was so exhausted by the end of that match so well. he, he admitted as much um yeah the mental effort maybe he was he wasn't in peak physical form he hadn't had that match much match play but he expected that he could do something he he thought he could draw on his reserves and somehow get through but it look it certainly looks like you know he's at the end of his greatness yeah, from that because it's Wimbledon, it's his best surface. But then again, like he hadn't hadn't had the best preparation. But you know, then I at his age, is he ever going to be able to put in like a, a proper preparation, like um, be completely injury free and play enough lead up tournaments and be healthy enough and commit that much um, ever again? You sort of think that maybe he won't ever be in the position again. Yeah, the, it's it feels like. You know, he's that kind of elite athlete who managed to play this incredible long career with very, very few major injuries. And, you know, it's, it's like a LeBron James or Tom Brady or something, you know, just the, the longevity and the you never think that they're going to break down. And then and then suddenly they do. It feels like these knee surgeries really took a lot out of him. The rehab was much longer than he expected. And it yeah, I kind of, you know, having read the Andre Agassi autobiography, you know, like Agassi talked a lot about how his body was just kind of broken at the end. The effort to like get out of bed and get ready for a match. He was in pain. And I, I think these guys, they have a higher level of tolerance, a higher pain threshold than normal human beings. Like, you know, like I sprain my knee and I'm, I can't run for three months. They play through a lot and... Yeah, your body doesn't heal quite as fast when you're pushing 40. And well, I'm glad to hear he's continuing to give it a go. I was kind of wondering if he was the sort of person who would just like hang it up, like with an announcement, you know, with a press release or like, will he will he announce that he's going to retire like after next year's Wimbledon, you know, and like go through all that? Because I I do think for him, if he announces in advance, like this is my last Wimbledon or I'm going to retire after the U.S. Open or something, it's like the hype around that, the attention would be so intense. And obviously everybody's currently speculating, like, I don't know, maybe this is the last Wimbledon. Maybe we'll never see him on center court again. Yeah, I don't know. I I don't know what he'll choose to do in the end, but I'm glad that he's he's continuing to play and he's going to the Olympics. That's great news. Oh, actually, um, I'm just doing a bit more research and it seems like the jury's out on whether he's actually going to compete. Sorry, sorry to give you false hope. <laughs> Damn, Roger Federer is not, in fact, playing in the Tokyo Olympic Games. Novak's not sure either. Oh, Novak's not sure. Wow, that's interesting. He's got to go, right? I, I don't know. Maybe he, he just values the slams more. The fact that there's no fans... I don't know if there's going to be a quarantine procedure, like uh, they have to get on a plane right now if they're going to go play or something. 
I think that that takes a bit of the steam out of it. Uh, you know, Nick Kyrgios dropped out of that like right after they announced there were no, not going to be any fans. Yeah, it's not like a, it wouldn't be a fun experience. Like normally, if you're an athlete going to the Olympics, would be pretty cool because you get to go to the parties and ceremonies, and yeah. you'd go once your event's over, you could um, go to all the other events with your athlete pass, I guess. But there'll be no spectating at any of the events, even for the other athletes. I don't know. It doesn't sound like it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah. That's a real shame. That's actually a really great point because I, I have heard that the, like the Olympic Village where all the Olympians are staying is like it's a real party environment. Like these are ex- these are elite athletes, often amateur elite athletes in a wide variety of sports and all brought together for this very heightened competition. And yeah, and they let loose and um, to not even be able to see each other's events like that's. Ah, it just sounds it just sounds awful. And I mean, obviously, like sports without crowds was difficult, but it we've also like the whole world has moved to a place where there are fans in the stadium, you know, even in Australia, you know, England just packed Wembley Stadium like American events are at full capacity now, you know, like it's a real tragedy that they weren't able to kind of work work out their their covid business in a way that was a, that would enable fans to attend yeah you wouldn't get any fans in sydney at the moment because because of lockdown yeah lockdown we've like really mismanaged the vaccine rollout there's not a high level of immunity and now there's the delta strain and so we're seeing like 100 infections a day in sydney um, just about, which is wow, I mean, which is huge for us. Like, um, yeah, and it just means that none of the like kind of these kinds of events would be possible at the moment. And I guess like that's that's still the case around the world. And you know, that things can flare up, and it's just not a great time to be organizing things like the Olympics. Maybe Tokyo should have waited. Yeah, it's just weird to be caught in between. Like, I feel like they're, you know, they, they kind of seem to manage the, the outbreak pretty well and kept the numbers reasonably low in Japan. But I, I, I do think there's this unfortunate side effect, like when you don't have COVID in the community and then the vaccine starts happening, it's like, well, first of all, it's, you can make the argument that places with worse COVID outbreaks need the vaccine more, although that's not really what is affecting the rollout. But then I think, you know, from what I'm seeing from the outside, it just seems like the vaccine rollout's so slow in Australia, but there's all this hesitancy. And the thing is, like, if you're really committed to this strategy of, like, no COVID, like, anytime there's any outbreak, you shut down society, you're going to be doing that for the next year and a half or possibly longer because you're not going to be able to vaccinate 100% of the population. People won't submit to it. I mean, there's anti-vaxxers everywhere, you know, and they're a problem and they're largely responsible in places that have had the vaccine rollout be strong, like England and the United States. That's largely who's getting COVID. The number of breakthrough cases is extremely low. If people aren't willing to accept it, at some point, it's important to accept that people are, are exercising their agency. I don't see any alternative other than the government saying, like, we're actually mandating the vaccine. I don't know. I, I may, maybe that's the right thing to do, but nobody has taken that step. No. So. But, like, in Australia, for example, like, I know Canada and the United States, like, have got really high numbers per day of vaccinations, and it's, like, that um, means that the population are developing this immunity 
but um, in Australia, we didn't buy enough vaccines from Pfizer and invested in this right. like University of Queensland vaccine that gave a false positive for HIV. So Jesus. So they they couldn't use that one, and they didn't buy enough Pfizer. And uh, then like the federal government decided, you know what? We're not really going to consult with the state health departments, and we're just going to like organize it ourselves so we can get all the glory and then they didn't do a very good job and so like we're languishing still at eight percent of total population completely vaccinated and maybe 25 percent has one dose of the vaccine the government just didn't didn't take the lead and didn't use this advantage that we had in like kind of being relatively covid free it's just a bit of a mess